Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 630. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Man, is this strange, you know what I mean? We had two ways to go in life. We could have utopia or dystopia, and the UK is officially going down the dystopian route now with we are in total lockdown. Man, this is just bizarre. Absolutely. At this moment, I'm still classed, I guess, in some ways as an essential worker. We've got to make sure the water gets to the tap. And we kind of control it, so I'm still going in, but there's there's all laptops on order to kind of get with sorted out, and out of an office block of say 400 people, there's just two now. Just the, you know, and we're separated. I've made this big room, and we're separated, and just the strange times. And my little village, you know what I mean? Just total quiet. What a strange, you know what I mean? And the stress levels, everyone, the anxious, you know, like people are not knowing what's happening, where they're going to get their money from. Man, this is just, this is, you know, like I say, we, we write about these things and, you know, you read them in, in your bedtime, drinking your glass of milk, you know, and then scratching your backside and going to sleep. And But this is reality and it's just a, a strange thing and it's like worldwide, man. Yes, yeah, so we're officially in lockdown at the moment, and it's like you say, my daughter's in another house and kind of come over. Our boyfriend Dan, he's in another house, kind of come over. You know, they kind of get together, or if they do, that's it. They're in together, and oh, bizarre, bizarre, just scary to be honest. And you say very scary. So here's some more scary news. <laughs> Starships of might not be going <laughs> carrying on. Yes, we're. Where it's it's affecting us as well. I got a, a an email from Gary, Gary, our editor there, Gary Dowd, and Gary's just saying we've got the stories. You know where people are struggling to get the work, to to get the recording booths, to get the you know there's other issues and things like that now, and our stories are starting to get limited. At this moment, I think we've probably got. Two or three weeks now left worth of stories. Maybe another week after that. So the re- the, the reality is, you know, it's well. What the intention is? This is the kind of the roadmap. Is we're going to just carry on, <laughs> blink at vision, as if you know. I mean, try and get some content out for you. As you know, you're stuck at home, and then if we use it all up, then Starship so far for the time being will go to fortnightly, and. 
you know, if that becomes like the crunch, then then there'll be no stories and maybe we might play old, you know, very old, not stories because it's all kind of wrapped up in in contracts, but maybe I'll play the, the first, you know, 100 shows where we, we kind of did the old original Starship Sofas. I'm, I'm kind of grappling that straws, to be quite honest, or do we just kind of, like everyone else, just pack up and hunker down and wait for it, you know, wait for it to pass over. So it's it's a strange time on the on the the you know I do the YouTube the gardening video it's announced and it was Grove on on the the BBC news program going the allotment is that's exercise that's perfectly legit you know what I mean so at least I can kind of you know I can walk the dogs and I can go the the allotment you know which is and then there was someone asking well what about golf golf's an exercise would golf's not on that you know so. There's a little bit of like a silver lining there for me personally, but for other people, it's just you know, it's just unbelievably. It's scary. Do you know what I mean? You got the slightest health issue, you you you're worried sick. You know, so but that starship's over. So we're going to carry on until we run out of stories. We might go in in a couple of weeks' time down to fortnightly. I hope Pope Obius can kind of stick with with the Patreon and just because the bills are still have to be paid. That's the scary bloody thing, you know what I mean? So hopefully you've got me back when it comes to kind of just even if we do go dark, you know what I mean? We're just going behind some exoplanet where you, you you won't hear for for a while you know so on a cheery note ah, i'm loving at this moment westworld oh it's straight back in it's a little bit more linear so you've got a kind of feeling you know what the hell's going on with it you know what I mean? but i'm loving it i'm absolutely loving it it's it's just a ah, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not just a kind of a step up from picard it's just like a whole different you know building levels up it's just i'm um, oh that's daughter's texting us there so actually it's a i've just noticed that it's a calendar reminder elvis tomorrow that's we were all going to the theater to see it was like an elvis presley apparently in the 60s there was like the most there was a million pound jam session where elvis presley might have been Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee Lewis jammed for this like a certain time there was four of them did this like jam session and they made it into a play and that was where we're supposed to be going to that tomorrow well that's cancelled and we knew it was cancelled a couple of weeks ago there now but how strange how strange indeed anyway come on man so I tell you what's coming in today's show, <laughs> Debbie Downer. Yeah, we have the main fiction is Enlightenment by Douglas Smith. This that story first appeared in Interzone in one hundred and ninety four episode, and it's the end of the month. There, the old boy still got there, still rolling out the old boy. There, it's Mister JJ Campanella with his science news. That is all coming to today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, the story is Enlightenment by Douglas Smith. It was a finalist for Canada's Aurora Award in 2005, and it also a sequel to the award-winning story Scream Angel, which we played on episode 462. 
Douglas Smith is a multi-award-winning Canadian author described by Library Journal as one of Canada's most original writers of speculative fiction. His fiction has been published in 26 languages and 34 countries, including Amazing Stories, In His Own, Weird Tales, On Spec. His books include the novel The Wolf at the End of the World, the collection Chimeroscope and Impossibilia, and The Writer's Guide, Playing the Short Game, How to Market and Sell Short Fiction. Doug is a three-time winner of Canada's Aurora Award and has been a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award, CBC's Boogies Award, Canada's juried Sunburst Award, and you can find him at his website, Smith Writer, and he tweets at Smith Wright, er, with just one R. This story is narrated by Drew Mowry. Drew Mowry is a PhD research psychologist who studies how societal institutions can protect the most vulnerable members. On weekends, however, all bets are off. His voice acting and speculative fiction embrace the uncomfortable, the weird and the uncanny. Drew spends his time mostly between Belgium and Bangkok, but can be contracted direct, contacted directly by citing his name thrice in a darkened mirror anywhere. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Enlightenment by Douglas Smith Read by Drew Mallory They're dead now, the Betanons. Thak Lu was the last to die. Her body hangs in my arms, as heavy as my guilt, as my footsteps echo in these empty, alien streets. And soon, we'll be gone from this world, too. I'm the last human in this bizarre, beautiful city. Fan is still here with me, but she's already dead. The high places rise above me, two bone-white curves sweeping hundreds of feet into a morning sky from opposite ends of the city, bending inwards like two impossible fingers yearning to touch. Built by generations of Be'enans and now only a body length apart at their lofty tips, the high places reach for each other, but they don't meet, don't connect, not yet. I'll go to them soon, to try to keep a promise. If I fail, and if Takalu was right, then what happened here will happen on another world, and another. But first, I must prepare Takalu in the manner of her people. She used to laugh when I called her Takalu, a name never meant for a human throat. Little here was meant for humans. We aren't capable of understanding. Beside me, Fan nods in agreement. My first view of the planet Be'ena came just before our attack, from orbit on the darkened observation deck of the MCES Anvil, a merged corporate entity ship manned by R.I.P. four soldiers of which I was one. I stood with Colonel Keyes, staring at the white-green swirl of the planet on the viewplate that covered the bulkhead wall. Fan sat at my feet, unseen by Keyes. Unseen, for Fan was a ghost. I thought of her as a ghost anyway, one that only I could see. My ghost, my guilt ghost. The alternative was that I was insane, 
and she existed only in my mind. I had not entirely ruled out that possibility. The screen lit Key's profile in hard, cold lines. The screen lit Key's profile in hard, cold lines. Did you know, Captain, that these Ips once had interstellar capability? Gave it all up over 500 Earth years ago, he said. Ips. I-P-S's. Indigenous peoples. A ripper slur for aliens. R.I.P. Relocation of I.P.'s. Wherever they interfered with planned entity operations. In this case, mining. Survey teams had pegged Betna as rich in an isotope of berkelium, a rare transuranium element and a key material in the shielding for Ullman Gilmore interstellar drives. But I'd been with the force long enough to know that R.I.P. held more truth as a word than as initials. Relocate was open to interpretation. Fon's people had been relocated. Fon began appearing to me shortly after that. I'd heard about Benan technology. Do we know why, sir? He shrugged. Dunno. They've reverted to a very simple lifestyle. But from the terraforming and climate control we've seen, they still have technology available somewhere. Another shrug. Doesn't matter. They've no military capability. No way to protect themselves from us, I knew he meant. Just like Fawn's people. I called her Fawn. I didn't know her name. Her people had lived on Fondor 4. They were dead now. Fawn was humanoid, but her red fur and the pointed snout and ears gave her a feral look. She was young, maybe four or five, about three feet tall, and reminded me of a stuffed puppy I had as a kid. The screen switched to an image of an adult Betanan of unknown gender. Thin, stick-like. Bony face, lots of angles. No hair. Wide eyes, black on silver. Nostril holes over thin lips. Long, purple gown, unadorned. Straight lines. Silky sheen. Keith snorted. Not much to look at. At least they're tall. Big buildings, high ceilings. High enough for use by us. And empty, after we did what R.I.P. did. So we wouldn't waste time and money making our own shelters. The entity expected a high return from a project world. Landing fleet ready? Keys asked. Fawn's ear flaps open wide. I avoided her eyes. Yes, sir. You still need to set their dosage levels for scream, sir. Level two for pilots, five for the surface teams, he said. Level five. Full combat hits. I pitied any Betanon that resisted. I saluted and headed off to ComCon to release the dosages, hoping Fan would stay behind. No such luck. The elevator shushed open, and she stood staring at me, tears running from those big brown eyes. She remembered what R.I.P. did to her people, what scream made them do, made me do. Think of human emotions as a sine wave function, valleys of pain, peaks of pleasure, the greater your joy, the higher the peak. The greater your pain, the deeper the valley. Scream took valleys and flipped them, made them peaks too. Screamers reacted to events based solely on the intensity of the resulting emotion. Pain brought pleasure. Grief 
gave joy. Horror rendered ecstasy. On scream, killing was an emotional orgasm. Some nasty side effects, such as a lack of concern about exactly who you killed, meant we weren't given scream until after military discipline programming and boot camp. R.I.P. kept senior officers clean, but every ripper below major was addicted. Withdrawal was long and painful and fatal. R.I.P. was our only source, keeping us loyal and obedient. Screamers burnt out fast on R.I.P. work, so they rotated us off every six months, or sooner if we showed unusual stress symptoms, like trying to kill yourself on Founder 4. In my rehab role as security officer, my dosage was just enough to avoid withdrawal, but not enough to let me enjoy my depression. The elevator opened on ComCon. Returning salutes, I walked to the control board. Fon's eyes burned into me as I punched the commands to administer scream to the landing fleet via the life support systems in their field suits. I informed Keys, and a moment later he barked the landing order over the intercom. With Fon sobbing silently beside me, I watched in the viewplate as our ships swarmed from the main bay, descending on Be'ena like a plague of black shining locusts. I enter the place of judgment, the Be'etig Lacht, the sole Be'enan structure I have found without windows. Only the Be'enan judges, the Be'eti, saw what was done here. The single vaulted chamber, tall, even by Be'enan standards, is thick with the smoke of torches and the sweet fumes of the Dorangkwa, bubbling in a vat beneath the blackened floorboards. Fan peeks from behind my legs, not wanting, but wanting to be in this place. Takalu taught me what was done here. I lay her in the frame of judging, the tig tar. I'm not worthy to judge any ba'anan, let alone Takalu, but I owe her this. The ba'aran, the book of forms, lies on a stone table. From it, I choose a do'ran, a pose for her upper body. Her cold flesh makes my hands tremble as I position her arms in the high form raised above her in two curves, hands just touching at the fingertips. It represents the completion of the high places. Takalu wouldn't approve, but Fan nods her agreement. I plan to arrange Takalu's spindly legs not in accordance with any form in the book, but rather to fit her final resting place, her do'lak. To the Be'enans, the place and the pose became one together forming the final judgment of a Be'enan. Yesterday, in Be'enan tradition, I climbed to the place I've chosen to make an exact cast of where she'll rest. My clothes are torn from that climb, blood crusting on my knees and arms. I wash the cuts on my hands, but they burn and bleed whenever I use them. Staring at the wounds, I think of crucifixion. I carry the mold I made from the cast to the frame of judging where Takalu hangs. Fan urges me on, but the Be'enan sun climbs halfway up the high places before I've attached the mold to the frame and positioned Takalu's legs properly within it. I step back, judging how I've judged her. I'm not pleased, for there's no pleasure in this duty, but I'm satisfied that I've met my intent.
I remove the mold from the frame and crank open the vat of Dorangkwa, the milky liquid used in the ceremony. As I wind the winch that lowers Talu into the vat, her position on the frame reminds me again of crucifixion, of her, of an entire race with us placed beside and below them as thieves. Fan bows her head in a final goodbye to Takalu. Keys chose the city nearest to the Berkelium deposits as our base of operations. As it turned out, that was the main city of the Pe'enans, Lak Ma'pen Lak, the place of the high places. Dropping forces outside the city, we secured the perimeter before landing in the main square. Twenty lashers, low-altitude attack ships, hovered above for emphasis. Unnecessary emphasis. To say that the Be'enans offered no resistance would be misleading. They seemed completely indifferent to our presence. Just as well for them, with every ripper on full combat dosage. We moved troops into the buildings, forming the main square. I didn't ask Keys what he had done with the original Be'enan occupants. I knew. Fan knew too. Her eyes accused, condemned. The next morning, I walked with Keys through the city. Fan stayed well back. She didn't like being close to Keys. Be'enan architecture, at least in this city, had an air of delicacy and openness. Most buildings were two or three stories, often with no walls, simply a domed roof resting on tapering pillars or thin arching supports. Where walls were used, they consisted more of window than wall, in a variety of locations and geometric shapes. The predominant color was white, accented by purple cone flowers, and the blue-green of a vine that seemed to grow as it wished. The air was heavy with the musky fragrance of the flowers. Above the city, large gray balloon-shaped creatures drifted. The project file identified them as mammalian, levitating by abdominal gas sacs. Other rippers shot down several before the herd floated out of range. Fan cried at each corpse we passed, but the dominant feature of the city were the statues, life-size Be'enan figures in an endless variety of poses and locations carved from some smooth, milky material. Their sculpture art seemed rather limited, I said. Oblivious to us, two tall Be'enans, some of the few remaining in the city, paused before a statue and bent forward to touch their foreheads to it. Looking for Fan, I was surprised to find her crouched before a statue, head bowed. Keys grunted, then nodded his head at the two huge white arches that loomed over the city. At a squad, check those out. You know what they're made of? Not waiting for any guesses on my part, he jerked a thumb at a statue. Those things, can you believe it? They've built those damn arches from those statues, one by one, fit together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. He moved on. I stared up at the high places, trying to fathom how many statues would have been needed to build the looming figures. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, each carved to fit with those placed before, slowly rising to the sky, reaching to touch each other. How many generations ago had it begun? And why? Suddenly, that question was important, as if an answer would explain why I felt so apart from R.I.P.,
so disconnected, as if the space between those tips was the distance between myself and the world around me. Just then, the sun peeked over the high places, melting the shadow where I stood. Beside me, Fawn stared at the arches, her face as sad as ever, and yet peaceful. She nodded. Removed from the vat, Lqalu has hardened in the pose I gave her. The liquid has saturated her body, mummifying and encasing her corpse in a super-hard, super-light shell. She stands before me again, but now as a benanti, a judged one. I polish her white surface with ceremonial rubbing creams until she gleams. Her face is turned to the heavens, eyes hidden behind this shell. Fawn backs away. Yes, Fawn. Now we've truly lost her. Somehow, while her body appeared as in life, she was still here with us. Now she's become a thing. Only my duty to her remains. I prepare to transport her to her final resting place. Although she stood ahead above me in life, in this pose she's below me in stature so that I'll be able to carry her. I smile. Below me in stature? In physical stature only. After attaching straps to her arms, I turn and reach back to grasp the straps. Hunching forward, I pull on the straps to lift her onto my back. She's heavy. I shrug her weight further up until her feet clear the ground, enough to let me walk nearly upright. Moving to the door, bearing her like my cross, I step onto the silent streets where Fawn already waits. Keys and I explored much of the Betanon city that first day. Fawn tagged along behind, keeping her distance from Keys. He was mostly silent. I knew that the Betanon's reaction to our presence, or rather, lack of reaction, had unnerved him. He scanned each alcove we passed, as if expecting a belated uprising to begin here. We turned a corner onto a side street and stopped. On this street, sculpted arms rose from the pavement itself, twisting and writhing upwards like frozen serpents, hands clutched, fingers clawed, as if grasping at something, anything to tear themselves free of some hidden hell. Upright statues lined this street, as we had seen throughout the city, but with their backs turned to this display of pleading arms. Behind us, not daring to enter the street, Fawn peeked around a pillar. Keys and I walked slowly along that strange avenue, weaving a path among the arms. Between each pair, rising just enough out of the pavement to be discernible, lay an upturned sculpted face. Perhaps it was the silence of that street, or the Betanan's indifference to our power, or the expression on those faces. Whatever the reason, Keys kicked suddenly at an arm. Despite the sculpture's delicate appearance, his attack had no effect beyond generating a pained look on his face and a mournful bell tone that echoed down the narrow lane. He stood there in silence, his hands clenching and unclenching. Then he drew his tonsor and fired a thin beam at the arm. The arm glowed blue as I felt the radiated heat. Keys holstered his gun and kicked the arm again. This time, it broke off with a snap, 
He picked it up, staring at the broken end. I heard him mutter, My God. Then he waved me over. Captain, look at this. He handed me the arm, and I examined the end. Instead of the solid substance I expected, the outer whiteness of the arm appeared to be merely a shell. I stared at the contents inside. Although Betanon physiology differed from ours in many respects, I'd seen enough dismembered corpses in R.I.P. to know that I was looking at bone and mummified flesh. I've carried Takalu only a small way through the empty city, and already I'm tiring. Lowering her to the pavement, I slump against her, resting a moment between the twisted upraised arms here on one of the Mimfiku, a street of the low ones. Fawn huddles close to me, sensing the evil in this place. Elsewhere in the city, judged ones appear in elite O'ran, a pose of purity, place so that passers-by must look up to them. Those are the majority, not saints, not devils, just good people. Could humans say that of our own race? Fawn shakes her head. But the streets of the low ones interred those judged to be impure, to have regressed from birth on a path to enlightenment. They were placed beneath the feet of the people, most of their encased bodies hidden, embedded into the actual roadway. Such a judgment was never given lightly. Any Be'enan that gave it would rest here as well after death, lining this street, their back turned to the display, a symbol that the Be'enan people rejected the lives of those interred here. I know each face, each story. Here lies Beswa, who opened the way for the ones who watch, from where Takalu's ancestors had banished them eons ago, and to where they were returned after the battle of the terrible silence. There I can see the twisted beauty of the Esto, whose passion for lovers was equaled solely by her passion for adornments made from those lovers. Beside her lies Kepe'i, who danced with the dead things in the city with no name. And there, in a darkened alcove, segregated even from these, is Detsiek, a judge himself, who let a desire for artistic impression override objectivity in the poses he gave. Fawn pleads with me to leave here. Sighing, I rise and take up my burden again. For there's another class of judged ones, the Betanan equivalent of saints or Buddhas, those who achieved enlightenment. The Betanans reserved a special location for the enlightened. I raise my eyes to the high places. The next day, to the surprise of all, Keyes halted the removal of the Be'enans from the city. He called me to the house that we'd appropriated for R.I.P.H.Q. News of the true nature of the statues had spread quickly among the rippers. A wariness now replaced their arrogance, an unease amplified by the ubiquity of its source. The statuary literally surrounded us at every turn. Walking from the officers' quarters, I passed several toppled and smashed statues. Juan paused at each one, touching it, head down. I found keys in the ops room, a central airy dome supported by arching buttresses and speckled with high windows. He paced beside a stone slab that now served as a map table. I noted that someone had removed the two statues that had stood on the slab. You stopped the reload, I said, feeling Fawn's eyes burn into me. Relocation.
Even after all the RIP missions I'd been on, all I'd seen and done, I still couldn't call it what it was. Keys stopped pacing and pinned me with a stare. I've been talking to a head honcho ip, some sort of priest cast. Talking, sir? I asked. Fawn grew suddenly still beside me. Talking, as in what we are doing right now. I was shocked. With no earlier direct contact with this culture, we had estimated a year to figure out their language. Comops has made remarkable progress. He snorted. Those cretins? They'd still be pointing to hollows and building goddamn syntax charts. He shook his head. The Ips did it. Yesterday, this tattoo or taku or something. She walks in here, at least I think she's a she, and just starts yapping. Perfect entity standard English. He plopped into a chair beside the map table and motioned me to another. I sat, and Fawn curled on the floor. What did she want? After yesterday, the men started breaking those things, he said. I knew he meant the statues. She wanted us to stop. That's their first reaction to anything we've done? What did you tell her, sir? I agreed. I ordered the men to cease and desist. R.I.P. colonels neither sought nor took counsel from Ips. My face must have shown my surprise. Keys leaned forward. She doesn't just know our language, Captain. She even knew our slang. Called us rippers, talked about Ips, Tonsers, Lashers. I hesitated. That could be a result of how they learned our language? They must be recording our conversations, then applying sophisticated pattern recognition and context AI. She knew that we're here for the Berkelium. The men might have talked about that. She used our MCE project code. Only you and I know that. That stopped me. Maybe they hacked into our ship systems. There's more. She knew stuff about me that isn't in our systems. Stuff from my childhood. Little things. Trivial. Not something I likely ever told anybody in R.I.P. Again, I felt the isolation and loneliness that had flooded me on first seeing the high places. I felt suddenly naked, exposed to the alienness of this world. Telepathy? Perhaps? He shook his head. I didn't even remember this stuff until she said it. So I thought it best to agree to her request, until we know more. He looked at me. Which is where you come in. Me, sir, I replied as Fawn's ears snapped up. I want you to be our liaison with these Ips, through this one. Find out what you can about them, what else they know about us, and goddammit how they know it. Why me, sir? He's frowned. You're my 2IC, and our security officer. Fawn shook her head. He was hiding something. I swallowed. If I'm to succeed, sir, I need to know everything about this. Keys glared at me, clenching and unclenching his hands, just like he had done before he shot the arm on that street the day before. All right, Captain. She asked for you. 
by name. The vines now cover these silent streets. They part before us as we walk, showing me the way, though my goal hangs clear and bright above me. They know who I carry. We pass many judged ones, toppled by rippers. They stand once more, resurrected, raised up by the vines, broken limbs held in place by blue-green coils, cracked wounds concealed behind leafy veils. Fawn tilts her head as the wind mutters in the rustle of the vines, giving voice to dead Benans. I know the words they whisper. All life here knows the deed that was done, and the price the Benans chose to pay in vain for us. Keys led me from the ops room to a garden inside the HQ house. I was surprised to find the garden untended for only two days since our occupation already overgrown. Vines choked the paths, and a pungent scent of flowers hung like an unseen curtain. A tall Be'enon stood between two arching fountains. A vision of the high places came unbidden to me. In it, this Be'enon hovered suspended between them, as if those strange great fingers were pointing at her, indicating her. Then she stretched out long, thin arms to touch both tips, bridging the narrow gap, finally completing the high places. Or did she hang crucified on them? The vision vanished. I turned to ask Keys a question, but found him gone. Turning back, I jumped, startled to find the Be'enan now standing beside me. She touched the fingertips of both her hands together in an arch before her, the Be'enan greeting, then repeated the gesture, but facing slightly to my left. I turned. Fan stood there. Staring up at the Be'enan, lips pulled back in the smile of her people. I'd never seen Fan smile. This so struck me that it was several seconds before I realized the implication of what just happened. I turned to the Be'enan. You, you can see her? The Be'enan just smiled, a very human smile. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> my name is Jared, I said, not knowing what else to say. She spoke a sound, or her name, I supposed. Clicks and bird song to me. Kalu, I offered, like a child before a teacher. She smiled again. That will do. So began our friendship. And the end of the world. My muscles burn and scream, but I refuse to rest here. Fawn runs ahead, anxious to leave this place behind. Even the vines avoid this street. Here the killing started. Here, the the huge gas bag creatures were slaughtered. Their corpses drape statues and buildings and cover the street. Their flesh doesn't rot in the normal way. It liquefies into a thick grease that drips around me and on me, making the street slick and treacherous with the load I carry. The stench, sickly sweet like some strange spice, is overpowering, as are my memories. I struggle on to where Fawn waits. I lived with Takalu from the day we met, spending all my time with her. I don't know if that had been Key's expectation, but once we met, it never occurred to me to do otherwise. Takalu never explained why she had asked for me, nor why she gave me what she did. More than just all of her time, I received her complete attention, her focus. She took me everywhere in the city, taught me of their culture their history, their beliefs, and of a thing called enlightenment. 
What is it? I asked Taqalu one day as we walked in the city, fawn scampering around each vine-covered pillar we passed. Your people will call it omniscience, but it is less than that. And more. It is connecting as one with life around you. On Betna? I asked, touching a statue as we passed. And beyond. She raised a long, thin hand as I opened my mouth to protest. More I cannot tell you, Jared. Not yet. Is it something that humans can aspire to? Your people will desire it. But can we achieve it? She looked at me for several breaths. We do not yet know. Then can you give it to us? We can open a way, she said, smiling down at Fan. Keys will want it, I said. Fan stopped, suddenly solemn. Yes, Takalu replied. Will you give it to him? Can a broken cup hold an ocean? I took that as a no, but I knew R.I.P. and the lengths to which Keys would go. Fawn looked up at me. I thought of her people, wiped out by R.I.P. and my role in that, and I decided I resolved to withhold all that I learned of enlightenment from Keys, though I knew that if he discovered this, I'd be court-martialed. Fawn smiled. She smiled a lot lately. I liked it. In those early weeks, Taklu showed me what it meant to be Be'enan. Then Keys showed us what it meant to be human. I awoke one morning to the sizzle of Tonzer fire. Fawn stood at an arched window in the room in Taklu's house where I slept, gesturing to me. I rose and walked over. A swarm of Ta'lone hovered above a nearby street, circled by a ring of lashers. The shimmering around each ship told me that they had their shields set at a wide dispersal. They were herding the Ta'lone. For the slaughter. Houses blocked my view of the next street, but Tanzer beams flamed upward. No pattern, just rippers firing at will. When hit, most Ta'lone would rupture and float down like a huge leaf. But every so often, one exploded loudly in flames to a chorus of cheers as the gas inside the creature's sack ignited. Fawn jumped at each explosion, and the herd screeched in mournful whistles. I felt Takalu beside me. So it begins, she said. You expected this? Her eyes lifted skyward, the Be'enan equivalent of a nod. But why? He's stopped them doing this before. He has learned of enlightenment. I swallowed. Takalu, I've told him nothing. Smiling, she laid a spidery hand on my shoulder. I know. I considered that as I watched the killing continue. How do you know? I asked. When no answer came, I turned and found myself alone. Below me, Takalu and Fan emerged onto the street and headed in the direction of RIPHQ. I rushed to follow them. Keys stood in the ops room with three rippers, two sergeants and a lieutenant, facing Takalu. Keys fixed me with a look I didn't much like, then returned my salute. The others saluted me only after glancing to Keys. He pointed me to a chair. The other rippers remained standing, and I knew he'd discovered my duplicity, my failure to inform him of all that I'd learned. I was through. Fawn came to stand beside me as if in support. 
He's turned back to Taqalu. Even on reload work, I'd never seen his eyes that hungry. They tell me you're the head ip. They? I asked. Keys glared at me. They. All of them. Any of them. You didn't discover that too? They all talk our language now, and everyone I ask says the same thing. Takalu speaks for Bena. Takalu bowed. I have been given this honor. Then you have the honor of explaining to me. He strode over to her. I think he regretted the move. She overreached him by a good foot, forcing him to look up to her. Tell me how you manage food production, terraforming, weather control, entire planetary environmental management, all with zero technology. She did not reply. Fawn crept closer to me. Or how you can give us exact locations of Berkelium, more precisely than we can manage with our instruments, drill depths, yield percentages, again, without the use of any technology. No reply. Fawn looked up at me as if urging me to act. Or how you know as much about Earth and Earth history as we do. Or how you can be in one location, then be reported in another spot, hundreds of miles away, only minutes later. I felt that I had to do something, that it was my duty to protect her as hopeless as it was. You said yourself that they look the same and their technology could be hidden. Jared. It was Takalu. She shook her head. And I stopped. She turned to Keys. It is called enlightenment. Keys smiled, no doubt thinking he had won. What is it? You will call it omniscience. It is not. Keys' smile broadened. Whatever. I want it. No, she replied, like a parent to a petulant child. Keys walked back to the ops table and sat on the edge. Oh, I don't think you want to tell me that. He fingered the stab rod at his belt. Fawn hid behind me. Takalu ignored him. I believe your people have a saying. We have lots, he snapped. Like don't piss into the wind. We're the wind, Ip, and we'll goddamn blow you away. I was thinking, beware of what you wish. It may come true. He snorted. Are you saying your knowledge is dangerous? That we couldn't handle it? Snickers ran through the rippers in the room. Well, sister, knowledge is power, and we deal with power every day. We carry it with us, we hold it in our hands, and we wield it as a terrible swift sword. You can't scare us. Some knowledge can kill, she said, a chill in her words. Keys stood again. His hands were making and unmaking fists at his side. So can I, Ip. His voice was low, calm, and cold. You'll give me the secret, or I'll kill every last one of you. A terrible silence descended on that room, like a beast waiting to devour the next sound. Takalu stood in that silence, her head down. I wanted to scream at her, tell him, you don't know what they are capable of. She looked down at Keys. 
No, she said. I bowed my head. Fawn stared at me, her face unreadable. Of all the places in this tomb of a city, I didn't expect to rest here, an open-air amphitheater sunk below the ground, terraced rows sloping down to a round pool. But the bodies of the Betanans that had filled this huge bowl are gone now, removed by the vines. Water shimmers again below as the vines refill the pool. Fawn leans over the water, staring at her reflection. I look up to the white arches that dominate this alien sky. Pakalu's people believed that when the high places finally met, all of Bena would achieve enlightenment. Would that such a gift had never been granted to the humans here. I was court-martialed. Keys could have killed me, but that would have been too kind. He had a couple of rippers beat me up while he watched. They dumped me on the street and he knelt down beside me, grinning, while I spat out teeth and Fawn cried. Maybe the Ips won't talk, but you, Jared, you're going to need a hit soon. Then you'll tell me what you know. He kicked me and then walked away laughing. Panic seized me. R.I.P. was my only source of scream. Withdrawal meant weeks of agony without the filter of scream. Then death. Fawn shook her head as if to say, No, don't worry. Fine for you, little one, I thought. You're already dead. In the first week after his ultimatum, he's killed 100 Betanans. Chosen at random, each was taken to stand in front of Takalu's house, shot with Tanzer, touched by stab rod, knifed, hung, bludgeoned, burnt alive. He's told his men to use a variety of methods to see if one particularly unnerved Ips. Takalu simply stood at her window and bowed to each victim, making the sign of the high places with her hands. They would return the bow. Then they would die. Some quickly, some slowly. Juan stood quietly beside her each time, strangely calm. I pleaded with Takalu. Why do you let them die? Why don't they resist? Why doesn't someone give in? Tell the secret. Some do not know, and so have nothing to give. Those of us who do know, know also that the secret would kill your people. The implication of her words hit me like a charged stab rod. You die to protect us? Your killers? She smiled. One day, Jared, perhaps you will understand. That was not my only surprise in that first week. I experienced no withdrawal symptoms from Scream. When I mentioned this to Takalu, she just smiled. A gift to my student, she replied. Fawn bared her teeth at me in an I told you so grin. Keys killed a thousand the second week. Still, they bowed and died. Stranger still, I perceived no change in the attitude of those Be'enans that I passed in the ever more empty streets. No panic ensued, no resistance, no flight. By the third week, the RIP bioweapons team had engineered a Betanon plague virus with a short airborne vector. Keys must have been desperate. RIP used bioweapons sparingly. You could never be sure of the propagation rate. Too high a rate, and the bodies piled up faster than you could get rid of them. Plus, they raised the risk of impact on humans and the rest of the planetary ecosystem. I explained all this to Takalu as Fan cried. Keys threatened its release. Takalu still refused him the secret. He's ordered it dropped on a city on the far side of the planet.
A week later, a survey team to the city reported 100% kill rate. The entity had added another nasty little bug to its product list. And Keys added a second city the next week and a third the week after that. Still, Takalu refused to cooperate. Still, the Be'enans appeared indifferent to their own slaughter. Then Keys must have recalled our sole earlier act that had finally prompted a reaction by the Be'enans to our presence, the destruction of the statues. But he was smart enough not to waste time toppling figures around the city. I was awakened one morning by Takalu, her usual air of tranquility, gone. Her head moved from side to side, a sign of agitation. He will destroy the Mappen Lak, the high places, she said. Fawn scurried about her in frantic circles. I struggled to wake. Keys? What? How do you know this? He is attaching mechanisms to the base of each. Explosive devices that can be detonated remotely. Takalu bowed her head. He has won. Fawn stared at me, as if willing me to some action. I shook my head. He slaughters your living and you do nothing. He threatens a monument to your dead and you cave in? They are more than that, Jared. She turned and left. Takalu, wait! I called after her. Rising, I went to the window as she stepped onto the street, Fawn running behind her. What are the high places? I called, but Takalu kept walking. Why do you protect them, but not your people? No reply. Again, I followed her to RIPHQ. Again, I found her and Fawn facing Keys and his officers. Keys wore a grin that I wanted to wipe away with a tonzer. He looked startled to see me, but then the grin returned, and he turned to Takalu. Got your attention, I see, he said. Do you recall, Ip? What's the decision? You are making a terrible mistake. You, Takalu began. Keys swore. Captain, radio your men to stand by to detonate. The captain saluted and spoke into his percom. You will all die, Takalu said. Silence choked the room. The rippers looked at each other, but Keys laughed. If you had any power, you'd have used it. We are protecting you. Keys laughed even harder, but few rippers joined in. This planet, this city, the indifference of the Be'enans to their own genocide, all had taken their toll. Protecting us. How kind. His smile died. Last chance, Ip. He nodded to the captain who raised his percom again, but Takalu froze him with a look. Very well, she said. I warned you. Remember that. She looked at me, and suddenly her voice whispered inside my head. I had never experienced that before. You, Jared, I will shield. A role remains for you. To you, I grant the boon of ignorance. Raising her hands, she touched them together over her head, like the high places, I thought, as Fawn hid behind me. Every object... Every person in the room began to brighten, to, to glow as with some inner light. I grant you, Takalu cried, enlightenment. We turn onto another street of the low ones. And he's there. Keys. 
He lies among the twisted arms and grasping hands, face up, his own arms outspread. He has crucified himself, driving a spike through each of his feet and through his left hand into the ground. A mallet lies beside his right hand. He mutilated himself first, his crotch a bloody mess, and gouged out his eyes. Fawn looks away, while I pause long enough to urinate on him. A while later, we reach the nearer of the high places. One month after the plague release, and a mere week after the gifting of enlightenment, I walked an empty city searching for food, found beside me. The only Terrans we found were corpses. All obvious suicides, hanging from archways by ropes or vines about their necks, lying headless with tonsors in hand, impaled on the broken arms of statues. Fawn wouldn't look at them. I hadn't found keys yet and wondered if he too numbered among the dead. That night, I sat beside Takalu as she lay dying. She hadn't eaten since her gifting to the rippers, and the plague had finally touched her. Fawn stood, head bowed, on her other side. The east wall of Takalu's room was just a series of pillars through which a cold wind now blew. In that direction, you could see the high places reaching for each other against a starry sky. With an effort that was painful to watch, she turned to gaze at them. I die. My people die. With our great work unfinished. What are the high places? I asked. What is their power? Her gaze never left those great arches, but she smiled. No power beyond what a symbol can hold. You know the power of a symbol, don't you, Jared? Fawn made the sign of the cross, and I nodded. The Ma'apenlak represent an entire race and its resolve, Takalu whispered. A people complete, connected in a belief, in a noble goal to regain awareness of the universal life force, an awareness we hold at birth, but soon forget. In one moment, to be part of all life in all places, to be one with the Creator. Is that enlightenment? That is what it would be, once all life has achieved it. What some of us achieved is only what an individual may aspire to, but less than an entire race, and much less than what all of life could do. And as each who had reached enlightenment died, the Ma'apenlak grew. What did you give to Keys and his men? What was mine to give, until we can see the web, feel the strands that join us to each other, to everything. That is enlightenment. I swallowed. You let them touch the web. She turned to me then. Yes. And they were given knowledge of the life around them? And their place in that web of life, and the knowledge that life had of them. She finished. I began to say that I didn't understand, then her words connected with a part of me that seemed to be born in that moment. The knowledge that life had of them. She knew my thoughts. Yes, Jared. The most dangerous encounter is with a perfect mirror, a mirror that shows us as the universe sees us, as we truly are. She collapsed further into the pillows. Your people saw the place 
that they had chosen in the web, saw each life they took, each strand they broke. They saw how life regarded them, a thing apart, disconnected from the universal body, an invading disease. She closed her eyes, and they saw the cure. Why did you protect me? A smile lived briefly on her lips. I know your place in the web. Beside her, Fawn nodded and looked at me, smiling. What do you mean? A task remains. You remain. The two become one. Takaloo, no more riddles. Tell me what to do, I pleaded. I cannot. You must find the way. It is part of the task. But I'm no less a murderer than the others who were here. Who better to lead the way through darkness than one who has lived in the night? I don't have the strength. Her eyes opened for what was to be the last time to look at me. You have more than you know. Promise me you will try. I swallowed, barely able to speak, feeling Fawn's eyes burn into me, waiting for my reply. I promise, I said to Takaloo. She smiled, perhaps recalling when we met. That will do. She died with the light of day, never speaking another word. Laying her hands on her chest, I looked up. Fawn stood at a pillar, staring at the morning sun rising beneath where the high places strained to touch, to become one. Become one. The two become one, Takalu had said. I looked down at her body, knowing then what I must do. My climb with Takalu up the high places has taken hours. The Betanans bore their honored judged ones by this path for centuries, adding to the structure death by death, but none would have come alone as I have. The initial climb was almost vertical, up steps meant for longer Betanan legs. I'm cold and exhausted, but each time I stop to rest and drink from my flask, Fawn urges me forward again, jumping up and down, pointing ahead. Now, at last, I near the tip of this finger. The rise has leveled off, but this final part of my journey is the most dangerous. More than 1,000 feet above the ground, the finger narrows and slopes to each side. The light is failing, and my footing is unclear. A rising wind sways the high places, threatening to rip me from my perch. It moans between the dead beneath me, each moan the voice of a ghost accusing, condemning. Another fifty feet remain. The wind's too strong. I set Takalu down and crawl forward, pulling her behind me. Thirty feet to go. She catches in the spaces and on other statues, and I must go back again and again to free her. Twenty feet, ten, I can see her resting place. I move behind to push her the final few feet. We reach the tip. Now I must stand again, lifting her by the straps to position her feet above the exact spot, her arms reaching out towards the other side. Fighting against each gust of wind, I lower her inch by inch toward her do'lak, I strain to see past her, to see if her outstretched hands will bridge the gap. She settles into place, her legs melding exactly with the limbs and torsos of those who went before, entwined like lovers, and her arms reach for the other side as if in prayer. But they don't touch. The high places don't meet, don't become one. They stay disconnected. And somehow so do I. I sink to my knees, 
the wind carries my cries away, making my grief as impotent as my effort to complete the high places. But in the wind, I hear words, a voice, Pakalu's voice. I look up. Fawn stands at the tip of the other finger, arms stretched toward me. I consider the distance across the span, no more than an arm's length. Could I touch the other side? If I crawl out, balancing on Takalu's arms, if I don't fall, if the wind doesn't pluck me off, if Takalu will support me in her arms, despite my grief and pain, I smile at this last thought and decide she wouldn't let me fall. I'll try. Crawling on my belly, my legs gripping each side of the tip, I begin to inch my way out to the end. I can't say why I'm doing this. It just seems right. A way of bringing closure before... Before what? Before I leave. I realized then that I'd climbed here not just to lay Takalu to rest, but to kill myself. I intended to throw myself from this height, final payment for the crime that we've done here. But somehow, I know that my death wouldn't be repayment. It would be an escape from a debt, a duty. I know now what I must do. Return to earth and make my people aware of what is being done on other worlds. I stretch across the gap, almost a little more. The tip sways and lurches, the wind claws at me, and on the wind ride phantom sounds and spectral voices. I hear the crash of statues and the screams of Ennans. I hear keys laughing, but above it, yet softer somehow, I hear Takalu. Try, she says, and I remember my promise. I edge farther out still until my waist extends past her fingers and I must grip her body with my feet. On the far tip, Fawn gestures me on, pleading with her eyes. I reach again and touch the far side. Electricity, energy, power, a force I can't describe thrills down my arm as my fingers brush the other tip. A chorus of a million Betanons deafens me. Visions of generations of Betanon lives burn my sight from me. Fragrances of a world of flowers and the stench of a mountain of corpses choke the breath from me. I fall from heaven. I slip from Takalu's dead, hard, cold hands and from the high places. I scream as I fall, and the world rushes towards me and I scream again. Then I am silent, for the world has slowed, and I watch my body fall away from me, falling slowly like a feather sinking in amber. Takalu is suddenly beside me, holding Fan by the hand. Other Be'enans hover with us above the high places, spread across the heavens in an arc, ephemeral hands linked in the web. Takalu reaches out to me, and I to her. We touch, and I am enlightened. I look down. Somewhere below me, directly under the high places, my body now lies. That seems both strange and correct. I sense Takalu with me clear to me even among the seemingly infinite lives of which I am now aware. I hear the question that she asks me, Now do you know your role? My people must learn, I reply, but I've no body. A human awaits your coming, waits for you to speak through him. When they strike him down, another will accept you, and each time they strike you down, you will rise again, stronger, carrying more of your people with you. You are the prophet. I remain silent. 
Do you accept your place in the web? She asks. Suddenly we were in the garden again, where we first met, and I smell the flowers and hear the fountain. Vines curl around my feet, and through them I sense the infinite web of life of which I am now part. The vision fades, but I know my answer. I'll try. I feel her smile. That will do, she says. I span star systems in a mind blink to hover above a blue-brown orb layered in swirls of white. I feel fond now as part of me, as she always was. I plunge through the white until blue resolves to seas and brown to endless cities, and I sense the billions that dwell in those cities and under those seas. I know them all, and soon they will know me. I fly eastwards toward a coming sunrise to the one who awaits me. And I think of resurrection. And there you go, Douglas. Douglas, sir, thank you so much. <laughs> Douglas Smith, that's what my dog's called. One of the dogs. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> Every time I'm seeing your name there, Douglas, our dog's looking up and saying, what's going on? What's going on? And Drew, thank you so much, lad. Thank you indeed. That's just a, a fantastic voice. Absolutely lovely. So, end of the month. Strange times, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Greetings and pathetic corona-demic recriminations, my poltamictic listeners. Welcome to this March 2020 Science News Update. I'm your host for this suffocatingly isolated podcast, Jim Campanella. Shall we start off with COVID-19? Sure, why not? Everyone loves a good COVID-19 story. Listeners just can't get enough. They love the rancid taste of COVID-19. Ew. Well, we have all been affected by this horror show. Has science been affected? Oh, yeah. The biggest way that science has been affected by corona is by having a large number of conferences canceled. Want a list? Are you curious? Sure, why not? Let's see here. Uh, The Northeastern Meeting of the American Society of Plant Biology in Westbury, New York, has been canceled. The National Postdoctoral Association Meeting in March in San Diego was canceled. Also canceled for San Diego was the Experimental Biology Meeting uh, for April and the Future of Experimental Technology Conference for late March. The American Physical Society canceled its March meeting last week for Denver. The American Chemical Society canceled its meeting in Philadelphia for this month. The April meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research was postponed until next year. In my world, we call that being canceled, not postponed. Also, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Woodlands, Texas, was canceled for March. Oh, and I guess every conference in Italy, well, Europe, and China were canceled. No surprise there, I guess. Is this being disruptive? I would say that COVID-19 is all kinds of disruptive. Heck, besides making us sick and threatening our lives, does it really need to inconvenience us as well? Well, all right. From bad to worse, let's try something new. Idiot colleges for the privileged of the month. The U.S. Department of Education is investigating Harvard and Yale universities for allegedly failing to disclose funds from other nations, according to a statement released on February 12th. This was first reported in the Wall Street Journal, 
And the investigations are the latest in a series of efforts by the Department of Education to crack down on foreign influence in U.S. institutions. U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, by the way, truly an intellectual among intellectuals, stated, This is about transparency. If colleges and universities are accepting foreign money and gifts, their students, donors, and taxpayers deserve to know how much and from whom. Unfortunately, the more we dig, the more we find that too many are underreporting or not reporting at all. All of this follows on the heels of investigations into six other universities, including Cornell and MIT, in an effort that the Department of Education says has already led to the reporting of $6.5 million in previously undisclosed funding since the beginning of last July. In those cases, the money came from Qatar, China, Saudi Arabia, and several other countries. Concerning the new investigations, the Department of Ed says in the statement that, quote, Yale University may have failed to report at least $375 million in foreign gifts and contracts, while Harvard may lack appropriate institutional controls over foreign money and has failed to report fully all foreign gifts and contracts as required by law. Unquote. Well, we already know about Harvard. You may remember last month when I reported on that winner, Dr. Charles Lieber, chair of Harvard's chemistry and biochemistry department. Remember how he was recently arrested and charged with a criminal offense after he was accused of lying about his connections with and funding from the Chinese government. The Inside Higher Education Journal writes that Harvard and Yale say that they are preparing responses to the Department of Education's announcement. Can't wait for that. What exactly are they going to say? Uh, we forgot? Oh, well. Okay, after those two stories, I don't even know if you can call these stories, let's get completely away from Earth. This is just getting depressing. Here are three astro stories. I guess you could sort of call them astronomy stories. We can argue as to whether we could do that. First up, Iron Rain? Okay, that sounds like a rock band name, or maybe an album name at the very least, or maybe a long-lost song from Bruce Springsteen. Anyway, it is not. I am talking about actual, real Iron Rain, not metaphoric Iron Rain. A planet called WASP-76b is about 390 light-years away from our solar system. It is a gas giant, similar to Jupiter, but with a much shorter orbit around its star. Fewer than two Earth days. It always faces its star on the same side. It's in a locked orbit. And because it orbits so close, the day side is about a thousand times hotter than the night side, reaching temperatures of about 2,400 degrees Celsius. That means that the side facing toward us is too dark to be seen by a telescope. But a small amount of starlight filters through the planet's atmosphere, revealing the outer edges. Until now, no one has gotten a close enough look at an ultra-hot gas giant to see how such stark temperature contrasts affect atmospheric chemistry across the planet. The team analyzed this light and detected a signal of gaseous iron, of all things, which is found in the atmospheres of other ultra-hot Jupiters. WASP-76b's iron signal, however, was unevenly distributed, present during the planet's evening transition from day to night, but not from night to day. Dr. David Ahrenreich's team from the University of Geneva reported in Nature earlier this month 
that they could discern this from the amount of light they saw on either side of WASP 76B, which correspond to the boundaries between day and night. Until now, no one has gotten a close enough look at an ultra-hot gas giant to see how such stark temperature contrasts affect atmospheric chemistry across the planet. Ehrenreich's team used the Very Large Telescope in Chile to examine starlight filtering through WASP-76b's atmosphere as the exoplanet passed in front of its sun during two orbits in 2018. Those observations revealed the chemical components of different regions of the atmosphere. Because the evening transition results in a drastic temperature drop, the team thinks the iron condenses into clouds when it reaches the darker, colder side of the planet, which means that it actually rains liquid iron droplets during WASP-76b's nighttime. Can you imagine clouds of iron vapor? I'm not even sure what that could possibly mean. Ehrenreich says that, quote, it seems likely that iron rain is present on WASP-76b, but it is unclear whether other ultra-hot Jupiters have the same weather. That will depend on the wind speed and temperature difference between the day and the night side, unquote. Here's another short story from our wonderful cosmos. Earth might have a new moon. All right, it's a tiny one, but it's new. Then you could call it a moon, sort of. On February 19th, astronomers at the Catalina Sky Survey in Arizona spotted a dim object moving quickly across the sky. After the next few days, researchers at six more observatories around the world watched the object, designated 2020 CD3, and calculated its orbit, confirming that it has been gravitationally bound to Earth for about three years. An announcement posted by the Minor Planet Center which monitors small bodies in space, states that, quote, no link to a known artificial object has been found, implying that it is most likely an asteroid caught by Earth's gravity as it passed by. This is just the second asteroid known to have been captured by our planet as a mini-moon. The first, 2006 RH-120, hung around between September 2006 and June 2007 before escaping. Our new moon is probably between two and three and a half meters across, or roughly the size of a car, making it no match for Earth's primary moon. It circles our planet about once every 47 days on a wide, oval-shaped orbit that mostly swoops far outside our larger moon's orbit. Dr. Grigori Federitz of Queen University, one of the study members, said, quote, The object isn't stable. So eventually, 2020 CD3 will be flung away from Earth. It is heading away from the Earth-Moon system even as we speak, and it looks likely it will escape in April, unquote. Though Federitz states this, apparently there are several different simulations of its trajectory, and they don't all agree. There will have to be more observations to accurately predict the fate of our mini-moon, and even to confirm that it is definitely a temporary moon and not just a piece of artificial space debris. Federitz says, however, quote, that our international team is continuously working to constrain a better solution. Next story. Dr. Julie McJock of Harvard University has suggested in an article posted to archive.org that she and her research group have isolated 
a space protein from a meteorite. Huh? Space protein? McJock's team claims to have found a protein inside of a meteorite. It would be the first protein ever discovered from beyond Earth. First, this is not an indication of alien life because it's possible to generate proteins just from chemical reactions. However, this is quite controversial because many scientists are skeptical whether the analysis really has found anything at all. We know that amino acids, which are organic compounds that act as the building blocks of proteins and life, can form on meteors and other space rocks. But the extent of prebiotic chemistry beyond Earth is still unknown, and how that chemistry turns into life is, well, even more mysterious. The problem is that once stuff gets to Earth, you can't just go looking for organic compounds there. You can't say, oh, hey, look at this protein. Because just by being on Earth in a place filled with life, it's going to get contaminated. How do you tell a contaminant from something that came from outer space? You see the problem here? McJock says that she and her colleagues are able to get around the contamination issues. And what they found is real. They analyzed a pristine sample of a meteorite that was found in Algeria in 1990. First, they used a series of small, carefully sanitized drills, similar to dentistry ones, to collect material from deep inside the meteorite. They prepared the resulting powder by mixing it with liquids, including water and chloroform. And finally, they fired a laser at the samples to turn them into gas. Gas can then be analyzed in a process called mass spectrometry. And that will tell you whether you have proteins or not. When they examined the gases, the researchers found a combination of amino acids and additional atoms, which they say is evidence for the first extraterrestrial protein. If this passes a technical review and is really true, and the jury is still out on this, then it's an important result because it suggests that certain types of chemical reactions could have occurred on the surface of the Earth or other planets and led to or helped the emergence of life. Maybe. If this mystical chemistry could occur on a barren rock in the vacuum of space, that means it's easier to make the building blocks of life in more extreme environments than we actually thought. Next story is mainly for my wife, who believes I'm going deaf. I suspect most wives believe that their husbands are going deaf, but I suspect also that it is rarely an organic issue. Hearing loss affects around 48 million Americans, with many reporting the first symptom as the loss and inability to follow a single speaker in a noisy environment. Despite this, conventional hearing tests struggle to detect hearing loss at the conversational level, meaning that many sufferers go undiagnosed. Now, in a study published recently in eLife, a team led by Massachusetts eye and ear infirmary researcher Dr. Daniel Polly has identified two biomarkers that may explain why an individual with normal hearing could struggle to follow conversations in loud environments. These biomarkers could pave the way toward clinical testing for hidden hearing loss, which currently cannot be measured using standard hearing exams. Polly says, quote, Between the increased use of personal listening devices, or the simple fact that the world is a much noisier place than it used to be, patients are reporting as early as middle age that they are struggling to follow conversations in the workplace and social settings, 
where other people are also speaking in the background. Current clinical testing cannot pick up what's going wrong with this very common problem, unquote. Polly first examined over 100,000 patient records from the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmaries Audiology Database. He discovered that around 10% of the patients who presented with complaints about hearing difficulties were found to be in good health, according to the auditory tests. Since common hearing tests are not designed to detect problems related to understanding speech in real-world environments, the researchers developed two sets of tests that would reflect the issues of diagnosing hidden hearing loss. The researchers then recruited 23 young or middle-aged participants with clinically normal hearing to undergo the tests. One such test involved recording how intensely the participant needed to focus on a conversation in a noisy environment by measuring changes in the pupil diameter with specialized glasses. The other test measured EEG signals from the surface of the ear canal to determine the participant's ability to detect subtle changes in frequency. Polly discovered, as expected, that despite all participants having clinically healthy hearing, their ability to follow conversations with other distracting voices varied considerably. The tests the author developed allowed them to identify participants who likely struggle with hidden hearing loss. These results suggest that incorporating these biomarkers into clinical hearing tests could be successful in diagnosing hidden hearing disorders. The identified biological and behavioral markers would be relatively easy to incorporate into clinical tests and could help health providers to understand, treat, and monitor these hearing difficulties. Polly closes with, quote, Speech is one of the most complex sounds that we need to make sense of. If our ability to converse in social settings is part of our hearing health, then the tests that are used have to go beyond the very first stages of hearing and more directly measure auditory processing in the brain, unquote. Next story. Scientists have created new superconducting compounds of hydrogen and praseodymium, a rare earth metal. One substance being quite a surprise from the perspective of classical chemistry. The study helped find the optimal metals for room temperature superconductors. The results were published in Science Advances by a research group led by Dr. Dmitry Semenok of the company Skoltech. A theory has evolved in the past 15 years that assumes that hydrogen compounds, hydrides, can make excellent superconductors, that is, substances that have zero electrical resistance when cooled down to a certain temperature and are capable of carrying electricity without any losses, which would obviously be particularly valuable for power networks. However, the sticking point that scientists are still striving to work out is the temperature at which a substance becomes superconducting. For most compounds, it's low, very low. So superconductors used in real life are typically cooled with liquid helium using complex and costly equipment that you couldn't use in a neighborhood or out in the burbs or anywhere else. Physicists are busy searching for a substance that becomes superconducting at room temperature. One of the likely candidates is metallic hydrogen, but the pressures required to actually produce metallic hydrogen are insane. They exceed 4 million atmospheres. 
Semenok's Russian team created compounds of hydrogen and praseodymium, a metal from the lanthanide series on the periodic table, and they study their physical properties. The authors synthesized several compounds with different ratios of atoms of each element. And to do that, they placed praseodymium hydrogen samples in a special chamber where they pressed between two cone-shaped diamonds so that the pressure was increased to a huge amount. And then they were laser-heated. The elements got compressed and reacted to form the compound praseodymium hydride. The scientists then replaced pure hydrogen with ammonium borane, a compound that has a large amount of hydrogen readily released when heated and reacts with praseodymium. And they found that this method was more effective and they continued to use that for further experiments. By increasing the pressure, they obtained praseodymium H9. The molecules they obtained fall into a special category in classical chemistry called the outlaw group, since they don't seem to obey the usual rules of chemistry. Anyway, Semenok investigated superconductivity of the new substances by measuring electrical resistance at different temperatures and pressures and found that the praseodymium hydride becomes superconducting at minus 264 degrees Celsius, which is lower than the lanthanum hydride, and although the two compounds are both chemically and structurally similar. Semenok says, quote, we applied the method used previously to synthesize lanthanum hydrides and succeeded in creating new superconducting metallic praseodymium hydrides. We came to two main conclusions. First, you can get abnormal compounds with compositions having nothing to do with valence, that is the number of bonds that an atom can usually make. Second, we validated the new principle for creating superconductors. We found that the metals from the lability zone located between groups 2 and 3 of the periodic table are the best candidates. And these elements are lanthanum and cerium. Going forward, we will proceed from this finding to obtain new high-temperature superconductors. Unquote. Last story of the evening. Okay, I had intended to stay away from talking about COVID-19 very much, but there are just too many worried people out there for me now to not talk about this study. It just came in a couple of days ago, and it's a very hopeful one for those of you out there who think that we are in apocalyptic times. Exactly how deadly is COVID-19? Well, that's been a real question up till now, and I think this is what makes everyone think of the 12 monkeys scenario. Don't. It's not that bad. Limited testing and undetected cases make it hard to pin down how many are infected, right? And that number is crucial for calculating the ratio of people who may actually die from COVID-19. Ta-da! Enter the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Remember, they were quarantined off Japan after a passenger tested positive for COVID-19, well, for the SARS. And the ship became a natural data lab where nearly everyone was tested and, well, very few cases of infection could be missed. Dr. Timothy Russell, an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, reported March 9th in a paper posted to medrxiv.org that infections and deaths on board the ship 
suggests that the disease's true fatality ratio in China is probably only about 0.5%, though that number may vary from place to place. That 0.5% is way less than the 3.4% of confirmed cases that the World Health Organization has come up with. I mean, mind you, 0.5% is troubling, but it's way, way less. The World Health Organization's numbers come under fire because the true number of people infected with the virus worldwide is still, I suspect, even when you guys hear this at the beginning of the month, is still probably unknown. Russell says, quote, How worried should we be? Well, it's more severe than the flu, which annually kills hundreds of thousands worldwide and has an estimated uh, 0.1% fatality rate. But it's not as bad as some numbers have suggested, unquote. As of February 20th, tests of most of the 3,711 people aboard the Diamond Princess confirmed that 634, or 17% of them, had the virus. 328 of them did not have any symptoms at the time of diagnosis. Of those with symptoms, the fatality ratio was 1.9%. Russell and colleagues calculate, of all affected, that ratio was 0.91%. Those 70 or older were most vulnerable, with an overall fatality ratio of about 7.3%. So if we extrapolate with those numbers to China, the team estimates that 1.1% of symptomatic cases are turning deadly there. The asymptomatic cases drops that ratio to about 0.5% in China, the team calculates. Russell cautions, quote, these ratios depend on available health care and public health measures, and there are still uncertainties in the data. For example, some patients initially counted as asymptomatic may later develop symptoms or even die. So the true fatality rate may be somewhat higher, maybe 0.6% or 0.7%, but that's still a good ratio, unquote. And I cannot argue with Dr. Russell. Anything that brings us below 1% mortality rate for the first global pandemic in 100 years is good enough for me. I don't know if this puts my mind at ease, but I think it certainly helps my gentle listeners. That's all for me for now. Keep washing those hands. Watch out for iron rain. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Stay healthy until next time. This is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, we'll just keep on going, lad. Eh? Just keep on going. You know what I mean? Worldwide pandemic there. That science news was on my in my inbox as usual. Nothing stopping that old boy. So that is that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, we're in strange times. We're going to try and carry on. Please keep on support. Well, that's vital. God, yes. If we have to stop, and then we'll probably. Stop for good, which would be a hideous thing. Anyway, until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I'm a-
tuning in to your transmissions I'm hooning, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out. 